0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This week, I am delighted to have someone who's become a dear friend of mine. I've known him for over 11 years, Uh, grew up in Tasmania, a wealth of experience, particularly he's a chartered psychologist. He also sport and exercise was a fascination to him, the sports science. And and, uh, he's taught me so much about that. He's been a CEO. He's been a vice chancellor at the university. He's got a wealth of experience and he's particularly passionate about people's education and ensuring that our universities don't forget the most important thing, the student, rather than somebody writing a nice paper and becoming famous as a a teacher, and forget that actually their job is to bring on the next generation of our brightest and our best. Without further ado, I'll let him introduce himself.
1: Well, hello, everybody. My name's Craig Mahoney. Uh, As Jonathan just mentioned, I'm delighted to be here today as part of the Inspiring Leadership Series that Jonathan runs. And I look forward to sharing my thoughts with you
0: over the next 60 minutes with uh, the questions that Jonathan poses. Back to you, Jonathan. Thank you very much indeed, Craig. It's, it is great having you here. And so many people uh, over, over the 11 years that I've known you have been inspired and excited by the work that you've done. And it's always, uh, you know, it, leadership has always interested you. We've had lots of discussions for you. What does inspiring leadership mean? Yeah, it's a, it's
1: a great question and, and and probably my answer will be vague if not uh, imprecise. I don't know what I think about myself as a leader, um, but I know what I think of other people who I've seen and been inspired by. And and I've had the privilege throughout my career of coming across some, some great people who have been my line managers and my leaders, uh, and I've looked up to them and learned from them. And so inspiring leaders for me um, are people who can create a vision for the organization that they work in that other people want to align with um, and, and want to follow. So it's it's about followership partly, but not on the basis of coercion, on the basis of influence and, and creative potential that others want to be aligned to. Uh, and so that's what I would define as inspiring leadership. And, and I've tried to do that myself in any leadership roles that I've had.
0: Fantastic. No, and, and it is so true. If without followership, you can't, you can't have leadership, you can declare yourself to be an inspiring leader and have the name on the door. But if others haven't said they found you inspiring, then it's not right. And I, I do get approached by various agencies who want their person on. they say this person's paying me to tell you they're inspiring, please, can they come on the series? And I go, thank you. <laughs> and actually, I'd rather have someone who others recommend like you. Um You've had a fascinating uh, life experience, you know, began, as I understand it, in Tasmania. Um, And and also, we worked together quite a while when you were the CEO of the Higher Education Academy and also at the University of the West of Scotland, where you did some uh, amazing work in both organisations. things shape us in life, you know, as you say, uh, we talked about transitions before, there's a book called Life is in the Transitions, we often go, this is a period of stability, now I've got some change, I'll wait till the change is over, and then life carries on there, but no, Hmm. it's the, the transition, hard or high or low, peaks or valleys, those are the bits that teach us the most, when you look back over your amazing life thus far, how have you sort of mapped out your life journey, and, and what events have really shaped you? Define. I call them defining moments. But what, if you were to think of of that, what would what would you say? Some of the events on the way from a young lad.
1: Yeah. Look, there's a lot of those. Um, uh, I, I suppose I'd want to start by saying that, despite the fact I'm a Boy Scout and I'm very proud of that fact, having mm-hmm. gone through Scouts from when I was about six or seven right through to when I was twenty and went to university. Um, I probably haven't mapped my life and career as well as I should have done. Yeah, the motto, be prepared in scouting. I think I am be prepared in most things in life, but probably not for the career that uh, has taken me from Tasmania, where I grew up on a farm, uh, to where I am now, living in the UK. And I've been in the UK for quite a number of years now, several decades. Um, That was never on the landscape. I grew up on a farm. Um, Life was very simple, as far as I knew. My parents were relatively uneducated they had left school at primary six uh, they didn't go to secondary school because their parents couldn't afford to they were both um children in very large families and and at 11 years of age you were expected to go and work so they did um, so university education and, and the journey that i've taken and the career i pursued were never something that was promoted to me as a youngster because it just wasn't understood um, I only look back recently to to identify the fact that I probably knew nobody who'd been to university when I was young, except for the fact that I'm making an assumption that our local GP had been to university. Um, I don't think I knew anybody else that had ever been to university. So it, it really wasn't a journey I was intending to pursue. And, and as you know, and will probably come out further in this, this series, sport has also always been a very... Heavily passionate area of my life uh, and, and being an Australian by birth, that's not unexpected. Um, and so, you know, I, I played competitive sports. So, so my early life was about going to school, um, being on the farm and playing racket sports. And I never projected forward to what a career might look like and what areas of life I might pursue. And and you know, if you ask me later in this series, this 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 sequence, um, yeah, you know, what did I want to achieve in life? I'm not sure, but I'm very proud of what I have achieved. Um, but the planning to it probably didn't arrive until after I'd been to the arrived in the UK, which is in my 30s, and and I thought in higher education where I was beginning to, to apply my energy, I thought I can probably be a leader in this in this sector in this field, um, and I did set about more diligently planning a career pathway that would. Uh, create the possibility of me becoming a leader and a vice chancellor to a university, which I am very proud to have said I achieved um, mm. two occasions.
0: Yeah, and in fact, two two thoughts come to mind. First one, I want to talk about England football and the women, because <laughs> I, I want to hear your view. Because you know, sport has mattered so much. How yeah. how important is that? Uh, and um, the second one is is perhaps if you picked out two people um, who've really influenced you, who who were inspired leaders that you took some of their best you know, characteristics. But let's just go, what do you think is the lesson that we should learn from the England football win 2-1 over Germany, nothing done like that since 1966, and how important it is to us in not just this country, but just as, as role models elsewhere?
1: Look, I, I come from a country where sport is considered to be equally important to health and education and it's funded accordingly. Um, And the UK has never really followed that model. And so I was delighted, as we date stamp this in July 2022, um, when the England women were able to win the European Cup. Um, It's fair to say that that sport in the UK, and I'm not saying Australia is better, but sport in the UK has been very sexist. Um, There's been a predominance of male sport uh, profiling for a long time. It's changing in certain sports, but it hasn't changed very much in football. And it was great to see that the women actually could come out through that, that tournament on top, having not lost a game, um, and showing to the UK and the rest of the world that sport, whether it's male or female, in this case it's female, is great to watch, is good entertainment. And they packed the stadium with more people that have ever watched a European final in men's or women's football ever you know, so so, you know, what a great outcome that is for sport, but for women's sport, and, and hopefully to raise some of the things that I'm very committed to and passionate about, and that is equality, diversity, and inclusion. Hmm. Uh, and in this case, we're talking about sex equality, male to female, but equality and the diversity that we need in the world to achieve the best in so many different fields, it's far from where it needs to be. Um, and this is one small step, but it's also a big step. Uh, and I think that we can look forward with some positivity to the impact this will have
0: yeah I, I, it's just so exciting someone was explained to me that that women played a lot of football just at the end of the first world war in the UK and it was very popular and they got huge crowds and then bless them the men in uh, British football put their foot down they said you can't play on our pitches and it, it they basically killed it off for almost a hundred years until now bam in it comes I know it's been going on for a while but just to this level, it's, it's great to see and the role models it provides. Yeah. Talk, talking of role models, can you, can you think back uh, over your career, perhaps even the time that you came to the UK in your 30s, when there's been a couple of people who you'd like to name who you have found inspiring leaders and what were their qualities that you've taken away and aspired to emulate? Mm. It's, it's a it's a question which I will
1: merge across into being inspiring leaders to also just being inspiring people. And, and it comes it comes from a very early age. And so I'm not going to restrict myself to two. Sorry, um, uh, you learn in two directions or I learn in two directions. I learn inspiring capabilities from others and I learn inspiring things not to do that mm. others have shown me as well. Um, And the first of those started in primary one when I had a teacher that didn't like me. Uh, Unfortunately, that teacher traveled with me into primary two. Um, And and so I had a a very difficult time, which my brother and I still talk about um, in early primary uh, education when when the teacher that was looking after me didn't foster my capabilities and I performed very poorly and my report cards demonstrate that. And then I jumped forward to, to secondary education when I had a fantastic maths teacher, Mrs. Poole, um, and, and, and I loved maths. I was very good at maths and, and science, and they were my preferred subject, uh, and Mrs. Poole was a, was a big inspiration to me and the capability of, of my potential around mathematics. And then I jumped forward to university where I studied chemistry and maths, and, and I had a fantastic chemistry lecturer that uh, covered many of the chemistry areas throughout my four years of my degree. and. Um, And and I don't know what it was about him because a lot of people didn't like him, but I got on really well with him and he inspired me in the subject, but also inspired me in terms of his ability to to demonstrate how to teach and create learning outcomes and positive learning environments. And that was probably where the passion for me being an educator arose from. And then when I traveled to the UK, which is, you know, date stamping, that's probably about 12 years after that chemistry lecture had inspired me, um, I came across a lot of people that for me, and then I was moving away from sciences and maths, I was moving towards sport. uh, And I came across academics in the area of sport science who were creating in me a belief in the excitement around this subject area, one of them being Craig Sharp, Professor Craig Sharp, unfortunately passed away just a couple of years ago, but but he was considered to be one of the the forefathers of exercise physiology here in the UK uh, and in the world, actually, Um, and did an amazing amount of research and application of research Um, through the Olympic movement and elsewhere that that, uh, became a great close friend of mine right up until his death a couple of years ago. And and it's fair to say he's probably one of the most inspirational people I've ever come across. And and that was a combination of his his broad knowledge, but the way he could present a story and, and inspire people and bring them forward and give them a passion for subjects, which is what as an educator you want to do. You want to create a class full of people who are excited by your subject and want to study it more and go and do more reading rather than merely turn up to your lecture and just listen to you um and and craig did that for me um in an amazingly impressive way and and yeah he certainly became an inspiration for me
0: yeah that's fantastic well uh, we'll talk a bit more when we go to the health question about um uh, exercise um physiology and one two tips for people listening these days because I, I do find the whole thing the whole area fascinating Looking back over your whole life so far, uh, we learn a lot from the peaks and from the the valleys. If you were to pick one particular moment that was one of your proudest in your life, uh, what was that? What did you learn from it? And then also a darkest moment of your life and what you learned from that.
1: Yeah, you're always giving me numbers to work with and that's always more difficult. So I pick one, pick one. I, I've had a lot of peaks in my life of, of uh, achievement that have really excited me. And, you know, they, they start with getting my first job, of course, um, uh, getting when I started working here in the UK in the area of sports science and began to um, apply my my psychology more than my physiology into elite performance. Uh, one of the most outstanding experiences of my life was being part of the the team that helped um, Derry County win the All-Ireland Gaelic football championships in 1993. Um, It's like the world championships of Gaelic football. Uh, They'd never won the championship. They'd been in the final once in 57. They've not been in a final since then. And and it was an amazing achievement that we had this Cinderella year in 93. And and I was very much part of that team. Um, And it's a real high point in in my professional career as a psychologist to be working with that group of players, achieving that pinnacle. But there are so many others and, and uh, that's probably the one that I would throw out there. But also too, when I talked earlier about my journey toward becoming a Vice-Chancellor, you know, it's, it's not an easy task to become a Vice-Chancellor. There's a limited number of available places for people to get them. To get one is a huge privilege. And, and when in 2013, I was able to secure the Vice-Chancellorship at the University of the West of Scotland, that was an incredibly proud moment for me, incredibly proud.
0: Yeah, no, it, it, it's lovely. And it, it's, we draw a lot from these because I think we can be, particularly if we're high achievers, as you, I know you are, and, and I'm pushed to achieve so much. Uh, it is useful to look back on these moments and what shaped us. I'm about to do a very interesting course in December called the Hoffman Institute Seven Day Process, which is is like about sort of three years of, of, of psychotherapy squeezed into seven days. Uh, And and you go back and you look at your childhood and some of the people who shaped you and um, particularly your caregivers up to the age of 13. And of course, my father was killed when I was two and a half. And so primary caregiver mother and sometimes my grandmother, uh, who stayed with us for a while uh, before the age of 13. And then also as a boarding school from the age of seven or eight, which is another sort of key caregiver. But one of the things that's interesting is, is this psychological um, concept that we, we either, with some of our primary caregivers, we either copy them and be like father or mother, or we do the opposite. Yeah. And I, and I think back to you know that, that first teacher you had who, who was so hard on you, I had a similar kind of experience, and then one that believed in you. And I had a similar thing. And actually, at that young age, it's incredibly, incredibly influential on, on everything you do thereafter. And I know that, that in the case, my equivalent of the, the teacher who was giving you such a hard time, mine said to me, Jonathan, you're stupid. You can't do your maths yeah. and you can't spell. You're gonna be a dustman. You're gonna be, a, you know, collect rubbish for, on the lorries if you don't improve and get better. Yeah. You know, you're not gonna make anything of your life. And I was bloody determined to prove yeah. this, this woman, Mrs. Gypsum, yeah. wrong. I mean, I'm sure the old lady's dead a long time ago. But actually in that particular case rather than give up and go she's right didn't and I think the other thing which helped me was my mother went okay you know she's might have said that but you're gonna be good with people that's gonna mm. be what you're good so like that, that sort of concept of what you can that belief of what you can do as opposed yeah. to someone who says what you can't um what about what about a, a dark moment in your life and 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 how have you learned from that because we all have dark moments and you know I'm sure mm-hmm. like me you've had many highs and lows in your work and in your personal life but but if you were to again pick, pick one but but just a generic theme from from some of the dark moments what has it taught you that helps you be a more inspired leader going forward
1: mm. yeah look uh, again as you say we've all had a lot of dark moments and and i certainly won't have any less than you um but but one of the darkest moments has happened quite recently to me and that's uh, that's losing a job um and yeah, you know, it's been it's been a hard lesson to accept, particularly when the basis to the decision isn't all that clear and then you feel as though it's an unfair decision. And and yeah, my immediate reaction was a, a grief response and I I became very angry uh very quickly and uh I'm getting over that, but but there's still anger there. Um and also an element of, of motivation and confidence loss. Mm. Um and uh, yeah, certainly even just in this just weekend just gone, I, I did feel myself to be demotivated. I I I felt lethargic, I felt um purposeless, I felt um lacking in credibility, I, I'd lost an identity. Mm. And, and I, I struggled with that over the weekend and I you know spent a bit of time talking to myself on Sunday night and, and rebuilding some of that. And you know, I've come into this week, now it's Tuesday, uh feeling more resilient and, and the recovery of that resilience is something I've known I've always had. It's it's a little bit like when I was playing sport. You'd lose a match in a competitive uh, environment, professional environment, and it hurt. But but I would always go into a period of reflection, demise, and then come back with resilience to, OK, let's improve that next time. Because like you, I have a very strong drive and, and I want success.
0: Yeah, and it is so interesting, knowing you this the last 11 years, is that Unfortunately, too many CEOs, vice chancellors, and other leaders that I've met in different walks of life never seem to learn from the past. They just they just bulldoze on. Yeah, okay, didn't work out. And and you are reflective, and it's a fine balance. We can reflect too much, but I think in, unless we're prepared, you know, those who have fa- failed to learn from history are are, are apt yeah. to repeat it. You know, that old curse. And and I think you do spend time reflecting and thinking about it but like in your games when you won a game whether yeah. it be a racket game or whatever it might or you lost it each of them are worthy of an after-action review and aar as you and i used to talk about it what worked well what would made it even better and 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 so yeah thank you for, for sharing that and being uh, being so open about that because I think a lot of people listen to successful leaders like you and others, and they go, "They just had a gilded life." I mean, I can't relate to those people. They've just everything's been given to them on a plate, and they've just gone from one success to another, earning loads of money and having a, a really good life. If only they knew the experiences yeah. that people had and how very human they are. Yeah. And 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 you, um, you know, like some of the, the the best leaders I know are very human, and you learn from those mistakes. Now, people listening. Um might have young children, uh, coming up to that 16 to 18 year old stage. Um, if you were to go back and meet the young Craig Marnie, uh, you know, coming off the farm in Tasmania, thinking about what to do, breaking with the past of you know what's done around here. We don't go to university. I remember uh, there was Phil Marshall, the Lord Bagnell, uh, uh was he, I think, a Phil Marshall Bagnell? Anyway, he was a general, let's say. And um he was in my regiment and uh, he went to see his commanding officer at one stage and he said so i want to go to staff college to learn to become a general and he went staff college we don't go to staff college in this regiment oh all oh, right so he changed regiments uh, to a, one that was a cavalry regiment that was much more driven and and he went on to become one of the brightest minds of his generation mm. but but for you a bit of advice to a 16 to 18 year old or people who've got those you know, this matters in life and this doesn't. From your perspective, what worked for you? What would what would you share?
1: Yeah, look, I, I'm sure we all reflect on life and think, what if? Because uh, a slide I like to use in presentations shows a, a kitchen fork stuck in the road. Uh, and it's a metaphor for me that we all come to forks in the road and we have to make a choice. And we go left or we go right or whatever the directions may be. and uh, And we all make those choices and we don't know what it might have been like if we'd chosen... The other fork mm. um and and i look back on my career and i think okay i made some choices which have taken me to where i am and i'm very proud of that journey that i've had but perhaps i did it again i might do it differently and and so for example one one very pertinent example here is that i as i said university wasn't something that um was common in our family but because my older brother had gone to university and he and i were very competitive i went to university for that reason There is no other reason i went to university other than because he's gone, I'm not going to let him beat me, so I'm going as well. <laughs> um, and, and that wasn't the best motive to go to university. It's worked out well for me, but uh, I was also developing quite a healthy career around, uh, around squash. And by going to university for four years, I lost four years of professional competitive squash that, that I do live with regret on, because some of the achievements I wanted to make through elite uh, professional squash I didn't make. And I think part of the reason for that is because the formative years and the early years of a professional career would be in those late teens, early 20s. And I was at university, so I couldn't tour. Um, and I think you know, if I'd taken that journey, life would have been very different for me. Although, although, and I, and I promote this fact very strongly, there's an obsession in the UK, more I think than in, in, in Australia, that when you get to 16, 17, 18, you should be assuming that you're thinking about university education. And and whilst we have a compulsory level of education up to secondary school uh, that students, all youngsters have got to do, the obsession that you must then immediately go to university I think is wrongly placed and it's about readiness. And and for me, the readiness for university probably wasn't when I was 18, when I went, it was probably later in life. And that's why in my thirties, I came back to university. Mm. And, And it's about having the bravery and the confidence to say, do things in life when you're ready, And that's probably going to work out better for you. And I've got one of my sons, my oldest son, who didn't go to university, dropped out of school when he was 16. I I hated the fact because I worked in universities, but he went to university when he was 23 because he said, I need a degree, Dad.
0: Mm. Uh, It's so interesting, Um, uh, as you and I have discussed before, um, possibly a reaction, someone once said, maybe to the loss of my father and how I coped with information. But I was dyslexic and had dyscalculia as as a child, so numbers and and spelling that the teacher was incredibly cruel because she just had no idea of the fact that I, what I was I think they call it neurodiversity nowadays right. um, There's a term for it um, but instead she was just damning me uh, as as being becoming a dustman and I'm sure becoming a dustman is is um, a very happy career for many people I saw a young lad running along by the dust cart uh, today with his clearly with his dad it was during the holidays and he was having the time of his life he's yeah. having a great time Yep. It's it's not what you do; it's whether you enjoy doing it. Yes, um, but um, this this really does shape you. Uh, There's this whole about what's right for you and what's not right for you. And and I wasn't ready at the age of uh, I was I went into the army to Welbeck College, and then from there you're supposed to go to to uh, university and then to Santos or to Santos and then university. I didn't go. I chose not to. I opted out, and I'm very pleased because. It was much later in life that I did my master's degree and I was really ready for it. and hungry. And goodness, yeah. I'm I'm obsessive about listening to audiobooks, probably mm. two or three hundred in the last couple of years. So uh, there's a time in your life when you're ready for it. Yeah. And so it's yeah. not everybody's at different levels. Um, I, uh... Let's go around the inspiration Leadership Compass, which, you know, well, with, it, with the eight components of it and just share some of your experiences and tips, if you would, Craig the first one is the moral question it's the it's the true north it's the being authentic it's following what's right for you Hmm. and and your journey as colin powell said it worked for me was the name of his book in in leadership and life and some things have worked for you and, and they haven't but what have you what have you done when you found your fundamental values you let them slip for whatever reason you were dragged off by ambition or other things, and you sort of let them slip and you you realize you had to get yourself back on to t- your true north. What what's your tip to people when when they lose their way? I mean, I know Boris is completely unsavable, <laughs> but but if, if it was people people with normal set of values that they do occasionally stick to them, what would be your advice about getting yourself back onto your true north, the authentic yeah. you with your values?
1: Yeah, I watched one of your podcasts where you were talking about Boris Johnson and his loss of moral compass, and you you basically said it was impossible for him to get back. (laughs) Look, it's a good question at this point in my life and my career, because it relates probably to where where I've just come from, in that um, the sector I work in, higher education, I'm very clear about what my moral uh, compass is for that, and it's about the support to students to achieve the award that they've entrusted us as a university to come and get. Um, and other things around that are peripheral. I'm not saying they're unimportant, but things like research and enterprise and uh, the other things are less important to me in, in my belief of higher education than ensuring that those young people who, who come to us get the support they need to get to where they hope to be. Um, and and so leaving the University of Western Scotland, as I did earlier this year, to take up a job in London, uh, where that moral compass of mine did not align with the organization I went to Mm. um, is probably the reason why it didn't work out for me. Um, And it's as much as I'm angry about what's happened, it's probably reassuring for me to realize that my moral compass is more important to me than the perspectives that a profit-based organization might have that I I don't share. And so I stepped back from that and thought, your moral compass is okay
0: mm. yeah and, and this is this is thank you craig uh, for being so open about that one this is a thing that time and again other ceos and other leaders that i've had h- have found themselves uh, as a ceo and as a version you do it's not black and white it's not it's so clear you know it's like it's like democracy as church has had the least worst of all the forms of government they're all they're all flawed uh, and and CEOs have to cope with shades of gray but if you've ever listened to anything about Mossack von Secker and the Panama Papers, I mean they just had completely no moral compass at all with with you know whether it's Gaddafi they were supporting or yeah. dodgy businessmen hiding money offshore or princes or whoever they might be. They they had no moral compass whatsoever. So that's not that's not gray, that's completely, no. completely black. It's not white. Yeah. Um but I think that there are times when many of these leaders come to a a key moment where they go uh, the the drive for profit over everything else is not something I'm prepared to sacrifice and and they choose to leave and this is why a number that I know want to go into charitable sectors or Mm do other work where they're giving back yeah because because they find that there comes a point uh, this is an interesting point about the corporation uh, a corporation is psychopathic in mm. its nature this is a conversation i had with professor roger steer he said it, it has an identity legal identity but it has no heart and it has no soul no no uh, whereas people who make up the organism they do have heart and soul and they want to have a passion for what they do and the inspiration mm. they have so so it is a problem what you've alluded to is a problem that many will face and you've got to look at yourself in the mirror and go yeah. am i prepared to sell my soul?" for for the yankee dollar or am i actually going to say that this is this is not free or can we have a mission which does do good for students in education and helping them come on which still makes a profit yeah. but not at any cost yeah. uh, so i think it's very interesting okay taking from that on to the next part pq uh, which is meaning and purpose quotient so you know your vocation your dharma i think you've alluded to it what what gives your life meaning and purpose now and as you're thinking about what next for you, if you're thinking about what next for you, which carries on you being on purpose, living your life on purpose, not off purpose, um, what what is the if you could have the ideal kind of role for you, what would it be next? Um,
1: it, it would be a role that probably remains in and around somewhere to do with education. I, I have a passion for education. It's not the only thing I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about sport as well, but but both of them for me have a similar. A manifestation of what i want to achieve and that is to support the development of others um, it's, it's always and, and certainly as you get older uh, it, it, it's for me it's been fundamentally important that i am leaving a legacy that's not attributed to me but is about supporting younger people and, and whatever you want to interpret by younger um, in giving them skills and knowledge of the experiences that i've had before they might acquire them uh, through their own life experience And and so as a psychologist and as a performance psychologist, I've always seen my role as one where I'm trying to enhance the rate at which a person picks up the mental and cognitive characteristics of success before they will ultimately learn them anyway, because they will learn them anyway, but they may be physically unable to then use them. And that's what performance psychology is about. And for me, it's the same in life. My, My education experiences have always been about trying to enhance the capability of others. And I willingly give my time to anybody who wants it if they think I can be useful to them. So when students or staff or colleagues across the world ever ask me, Craig, can I have some of your time? I'll always give it, much to the chagrin of my wife, but I'll always give it because if they think that I can be valuable to them, I want to help them. That Mm -hmm. happened earlier today. I had a colleague, a vice chancellor of another university, phone me up and say, Craig, can you give me two hours of your time to help me with something? And I said, sure. And he said, how much will you charge? And I said, it's not about the money. I said, I'm happy to give you my time. Um, and, and so yeah, we've agreed to do that on the sixteenth of August. So, uh, for me, giving back and helping other people who want some access to your knowledge and experience is is crucial to my being.
0: Yeah, that's so lovely and so you. And also, you alluded to your wife. Your wife is also comes from an education background. Do you want to just say w- what you find special about your wife and her her work in education? Oh God, she did say she was
1: going to come up and listen to this, so she might come through that back door in a minute. Um, <clears throat> Uh, look, yeah, you're, you're right. She works in in education, higher education, the same as I do. Uh, we're both fairly similar in our in our belief about the purpose of education and the value that it brings, um, and, and we're both always trying to give back and, and make a difference in the lives of others. So there's a very common shared theme between the two of us in our perspectives and the ideals that we that we hold, and and, and perhaps sometimes what we believe in is idealistic, but it's that idealism that that has taken me through my life and enabled me to do it my way um with with as she often says you, you're too idealistic yeah i am i, I know that but i'm not going to change because i believe that's the right approach for me
0: yeah well uh, idealistic and also but you're passionate about it and, and it's often the passion that people follow um particularly when it when it has a strong moral compass but combined with passion so it's that sense of Uh, moral quotient with purpose leaving a legacy which we'll come on to at the very end and also lovely combining with the sports which is brings me on to the third which is the health question so this is brain health and physical health something that you've studied way before it was fashionable you were interested in it and as you know uh, now I'm in my 60s I'm really interested in keeping healthy I've just come back from the chiropractor where she just did a little bit of manipulation after having done 10,000 meters of Zone level two rowing, zone two rowing, um, and uh, and she said, you know, you're in, in good shape, which I'm pleased about. Uh, thank God, because you know, yoga helps, doesn't it? And we get older to keep those stretching going. But what's your tip about exercise physiology? Uh, a couple of tips uh, about perhaps physical health and the brain health we talk a lot about, but you might want to talk about both. Let's just talk about this area a bit.
1: I, I do think they're inseparable, and for a long time in my profession outside of higher education, I. I was uh, an advocate and, and a consultant for both um, exercise physiology and, and sport and exercise psychology. And the two of them are intrinsically linked. There is no question that you can't really have mental health without physical health, and you can't really have physical health without mental health. But look, uh, the, the early part of my time in the UK, I was a research assistant working in, um, in Northern Ireland, um, researching coronary heart disease, uh, mm. one of the biggest killers of people in Northern Ireland and also Scotland. And the UK is not terribly good either. Um, and and, it taught me a lot of lessons about the importance of regular physical activity, um, minimum expectations, elevations of heart rate, um, eating the right food, but at the same time having a positive mental attitude. And and I say those things as if they're throwaway and simple, and I want to reinforce the fact that none of those things are straightforward and simple. Uh, They require a lot of effort, and for some people, they are very, very difficult to achieve, even start uh, and and certainly you know doing that research for three or four years as i did i we were able to identify markers of, of coronary heart disease later in life that children were exhibiting and how you might try and change through education the prospect of that being averted so that they wouldn't have an early demise or a limitation to their later life because people people make. When you're young, you, you believe you're invincible and you make assumptions, well, if I die, I'll die quickly. That's not often the case. People often have long extended periods of illness before they die. And, and a lot of that can be averted if they have the right approach to physical and mental health. And, and so yeah, my advice here would be whatever age you are, whatever size you are, whatever sex you are, whatever ability you may have, whatever background you come from, exercise is important. And exercise doesn't need to be going out and doing your your rowing exercise that will have elevated your heart rate quite considerably. It's as simple as walking up and down stairs or taking some walking exercise because for some people, that's as much as they can do. And there's nothing wrong with that. Regular walking, 20, 30 minutes a day. And and most people can find the time to put that in. I, I appreciate I'm making an assumption there, but most people can find the time to put in 20 or 30 minutes of time per day to do some walking. Over time, you'll gain some fitness from that. Watch out for your diet and always look at your mental health and make sure that's being cared for as well. All of these things are, are interlinked in a way which can't be separated. And I advocate to anybody out there listening to this whatever your background, if you're not exercising at the moment, please do some and begin to work on your mental health as well.
0: Yeah, uh, very, very wise words and uh, so important to us. One of the things I'm working on, Craig, which you'll smile is because I'm quite uh, keen on helping people get healthy and fit both mental and physical health having um, either been injured or at times my mental health has, has taken a hit because of some situations I've been in I, uh, having a bit like a non-smoker you know who's given up I, I've now become sort of obsessive about it and and um, I've just got to be careful I don't look at people and think come on you could do so much more if you only do this and this and this some people don't want to do that. It's, you, you've got to have it with people who who do want to develop. It's a good reminder. The next one round is EQ, emotional and social intelligence. You and I have spoken about this at length, and again, it goes back to the patterns that we had from our parents. That's the way they behave, so we just behave that way. We haven't really given it much consideration, but as you and I both know, we can develop emotional social intelligence just like we can develop physical fitness and mental fitness. What would be a, a top tip that you've learned that you'd You'd pass on to others and say, look, this this is a really important one uh, in the way you build rapport and and get on with other people.
1: Yeah, I I can recall one of the first ever sessions I had with you when you talked to me about my language. Um, (laughs) I won't repeat the phrase, you might, but I won't. Um, It really struck a chord with me. I I had known for a long time that as an Australian, I'm fairly direct and I'm fairly outspoken. uh, And... uh, in my country, that's pretty typical and not abnormal. And it, it really isn't necessarily problematic. But in the UK, where people are much more uh, reserved and and not so direct or outspoken as I was, um, it demonstrated to me, and you taught me some really strong lessons around this, that my emotional intelligence was pretty poor. Uh, and I have spent a lot of time, um, certainly since I met you, but I had started before that, trying to work on how to enhance my emotional intelligence and I, and I think I'm, I think I'm better at it I, I wouldn't say I'm excellent but I think I'm much better at it now uh, so much so that I, I often enter conversations with people being more sensitive to their emotions than the words they're saying because quite often you can pick up from the emotion of a situation the trauma that that person's going through where your help is going to be Advantageous, mm. rather than listening to the words and missing the emotion. And, and, and I can recall before I met you on a leadership event once where the task that we were given in pairs was to go to a, a place and, and we were staying in a hotel in Edinburgh at the time. So the person I was working with, we, we went to an outside space and sat on a bench in the environment that we were sitting in this very nice hotel with, with lots of grounds, And we had to take a minute or two to describe what we were feeling, what we were sensing. And, and I, I was very, very objective. And I was saying, well, we're sitting outside, the wind's okay. Um, and, and, and everything I did was almost mathematical. And uh, the lady that I was working with at the time when it was her turn, she went second. She gave a totally different perspective to this around the aura of the situation, the emotion of the situation and, and things which just had not, they were over my head In my explanation, but when she told them to me, I thought, oh, wow, 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 I've missed all that. And I had missed all that. And it was because I was emotionally unintelligent. And so I'm talking there back in the early 2000s. and, And it was a starting point for me on a journey, which you enhanced even more to become much more aware of the emotions of a situation and how to make use of and develop your own emotional intelligence. In an advantageous way to be able to pick up on situations that I had been oblivious to before that.
0: Yeah, oh, it's great, and it's and it's been lovely to see your fascination with learning about it, and also almost like catching yourself when you're getting off track, and you yeah. just course correcting, and just yeah. apologising, course correcting, and and going back in. The other thing which you've led the way in so many ways is what I call CQ cultural intelligence. Um, around collaborative, cognitive and cultural. its a whole mix of things, but particularly people would recognize it through diversity, equality and inclusion. Um, What what would you give as a a top tip for leaders listening who want to, they know it's important, it's never out of the news, but what would you give as one practical tip about developing better diversity, equality and inclusion in their organization?
1: It, that's, a, that's a great question and, and you know, one that I could probably talk on for about an hour and a half about, but I won't. Um, it's an area that I'm very passionate about. I've got five mixed race children. Um, I spent a lot of time trying to understand how it can be. People look at me and say, OK, you're a white privileged male, individual male, which, yeah, to some extent I am. But, but as we highlighted earlier, nobody's journey is as straightforward as it appears to somebody else. And, and my life has not been without discrimination, but it's different discrimination than other people will experience. I accept that. Um, and, and so to any leader, what I would say is don't assume you know everything about equality, diversity and inclusion and keep asking questions. There's nothing more rewarding, I think, for somebody who feels that they are discriminated against or oppressed or cannot be their true self. And that's a, that's a measure for me. Can a person be their true self? Is, is an example of where you're getting it right around creating the right culture for equality, diversity and inclusion. Uh, I remember reading a story in, in the papers one or two years ago during the pandemic where um, a black actor here in London was saying that, you know, taking a long time to, to get some level of equality around his, his blackness, his, his skin color and get acceptance for that. But what he had never felt able to describe to anybody else was the fact that he was also an HIV carrier and had been for 20 years. And he therefore could not be him true self. And when he finally was able to come out and say, well, I'm also an HIV positive individual, he said it was it was uplifting. It was enlightening. Now, the fact that he couldn't be his true self, that's discrimination. And and leaders need to ask that question of the people around them, close to them and those across the organization. Can everybody in your organization be their true self, regardless of whatever their their background or their, their inspiration, their aspiration or their characteristics might be? And it's not just restricted to the nine statutory obligations we have around equality. It goes further than that. And and I think we sometimes don't give the credibility to the breadth of things that need to be done here to be able to sort this out. And and it's very easy to talk about sex discrimination or sex equality, male and female. It's more than that. There are so many parts of, of the equality legislation which are being ignored by organizations. And I implore any leader listening to this, have a look at your own organization because it won't be as good as you think.
0: Yeah, uh, it, it's such a big topic. And, uh, and I think uh, people would be very fortunate if you were able to uh, give any talks to them uh, about that that topic, because I, I love that one. Can a person be their true self? I think I'm taking that one away and it will, I'll carry that with me throughout my life. Uh, which takes me on to a, a link to that RQ, resilience question. Coping with uh, you know people who do face discrimination have to uh, learn ways of being resilient until they're able to address it. But coping with adversity, setbacks, disappointments—you just as you've experienced recently—it does require you to dig deep and have resilience. But as you were telling me earlier, in the health quotient aspect of it, the two are very closely linked. Because sometimes some people are very, um, very resilient and they keep driving on and pushing on. They never take breaks and they don't take holidays and. You know, is it, uh, one of the basketball players, you know, he doesn't have a summer break. He just works more on his game. And you go, OK. Um, but the problem is they push their resilience to such a level that they themselves suffer. Their health, mental and physical suffers because they've, they've overdone the resilience. I've got to be hard. You know, what was that they work hard, make no waves, be more than you seem. That was a tip I was given by one of the generals when I won an award as a young officer. Um, it was from the general von Molk, the German Prussian general. And I thought, that's interesting. I do like the humility. And of course, work hard is always the answer, but not at all costs. Mm. So what's your tip on resilience and picking yourselves up when things have knocked you down?
1: Well, you know, for different people, I react in different ways. Um resilience is a characteristic that we all need to develop because there'll always be setbacks in life and they'll be personal professional and and probably other areas as well uh, and and each of us reacts differently to that what's tragic is if somebody goes into a spiral of uh, depression that, that means they can't recover from that and and that's probably more likely if all their other fuel stores are diminished because they've not taken the right sort of work-life balance I think you know, one of the things that, that I'm realizing from this this interregnum I'm having at the moment between jobs is that uh, I probably needed a break. I would prefer not to have taken it this way, uh, but I probably needed a break. Mm-hmm. And, and so not to have the daily grind and the next meeting and the next objective fluctuating around in my mind constantly at the moment. I'm actually able to step back a little bit. And, and my wife has welcomed having me around a bit more. I um, don't know how long that'll go on for, she might very well find I'm imposing on her space too much eventually, but at the moment she's enjoying having me around. And it's, it's forcing me to, to reflect on what I want next in terms of a work-life balance, because I am someone who does embroil themselves in work. I like working. Um, I like working hard and I like achieving positive outcomes and, and helping others create a difference to the organisations I work in. But that sometimes has me overcommitting. Um, And so I'm always saying yes, and I'm I'm, giving lots of time that probably I shouldn't be giving. So one of the things I'm reflecting on at the moment is, okay, in that next place where I want to share my dreams with whoever wants to employ me, uh, I'm thinking, I need to make sure that I protect a bit of time for us, my wife and I and the kids, seven of them, the one grandchild and and other friends and family such that it's not constantly on a treadmill. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in answer to your question i think it's it's a matter of perhaps stopping for a minute having a look at your own life individuals who are listening to this and saying is my work-life balance right and can i adjust it because once you're on that treadmill it's actually very hard to slow it down again
0: mm.
1: and and actually take that space away so you need to find a catalyst for that for me that catalyst has been losing my job
0: yeah and and i think it's very good that you mentioned this point about the work bit and the life bit. And one of the other leaders on the series earlier said that actually in some ways, we're trying to elude ourselves if we think it's work-life balance. It's never in balance, but it is a work-life integration. How how do you integrate the two, but also create space to think? As a leader, you need space and time to think. So it's actually very good for you to have an interregnum, to have a sabbatical now before you take on your next big role, because then you can start thinking about where you add the value, what are your callings, what's your vocation? what's being on purpose, not off purpose. Yeah. Uh, I, I still have this image, which will stay with me for the rest of my life, being on mile one of the Inca Trail in the Sacred Valley, running along my life purpose, my, my route. And, and yet to be off purpose, you had to climb up out of the little, the little area that had been cut into the ground to go on the sides, which are rockier. So I think you being back on purpose, doing what you're really good at and what you put on the planet to do is very important, Craig. And, and then that links me nicely on to the next question, the penultimate one, which BQ brand, reputation, image and impact. Um, you and I made a point of doing 360, which I always encourage all CEOs to do. They can sometimes delude themselves. They go, well, I'm fantastic. Everybody tells me I'm great. And all the toilets are freshly painted and smell nice of roses. Yeah, well, that's because you're the CEO. Have you had 20 people give you 360 feedback? And what is your learning? Well, I don't like what they say. Yeah, I know sometimes what they say is not what you want to hear, but it's, it's how they perceive it. What's been your learning over 360 and, and why would you recommend it if you do? to other CEOs and other leaders that they go through that process?
1: Well, I do recommend that that would be the first thing to say. I think um, I've had several 360s done throughout my career. Um, the first one I had done, uh, I can remember we, we end, ended up getting feedback in a group. And um, I was sitting there looking at my feedback, feeling pretty smug about myself. This is decades ago. Um, but there were other people in the room who were in tears. Um, I've since had that experience where the feedback has been pretty brutal and uh, and you think oh my god the perception of other people of you as an individual as a leader um, and how they interpret you which is their reality um, isn't great and and you're you're the catalyst of my most recent uh, 360 done in 2017
0: mm.
1: and um, and it was you you remember this it was pretty brutal for me and we went through a program to work with my colleagues to try and build the right sort of characteristics in me to be able to help them be the best they could be and and catch them having success and doing great things. Uh, And I think we achieved that. And I'm I'm very proud of, I'm proud of the way that you helped me go through that journey to make changes that made me a better leader. And I think I'm a better leader from that. Um, And and I've always said, and, and I still stand by this, that Leadership development, which some people see as a weakness, I see as a great strength. And I've been privileged throughout my career to be involved with people like you and other leader other leadership development coaches and, and mentors because the people around me have been willing to support my involvement in those programs. And and I've done the same. I, I think I think the mentoring, coaching and development of people around you is a fundamental part of business development and and no one can do it on their own. And certainly at the top of the tree, and I've been there now for 15 years, is a pretty lonely place. And you sometimes need the support of somebody else to help you see the pathway forward, to be able to create a safe space for the review of your own thinking and the dilemmas that you're in. Um, and and 360 feedback, and then the intentions of what you're going to do with that, because just the 360 feedback's no good on its own. You actually got to do something with it, and that's what yeah. we did. That's yeah, uh, did.
0: Uh, and brilliantly uh, in the way that you, when you reflected on it, did your after action review, and you thought on it. Um, as, as you said, at first, for many leaders, it's very hard to accept and uh, but then when you reflect on it and you decide if there's two behaviors that just two that i can work on that will make the biggest difference which two are they going to be and you really you really led the way on that which leads me on to the legacy that you left whether it be uh, in, in your uh, seven years at university of west of scotland or other places you've been what would you like your legacy to be when sadly like my um my dear brother david who died last year didn't expect it at, he was only 63 but you know, when we do die, um, people reflect on the legacy we've we've left. Whether it be in your case, you know, seven kids and a grandchild. Um, uh, what would you like your legacy to be, both in your work and your personal life? In a sentence, in each. What would you want people to say about you, Craig?
1: Yeah, I, I hope uh, in my my personal life that uh, my children are picking up something from me in terms of uh, my passion for helping others. Um, understand that the, the value of education that I think is, is crucial um, and that to leave the world a better place is the responsibility of us all. And, and for me, that's been through a combination of education, the work I've done with the diversity and inclusion, and also the work that I've been doing for the past five years around and climate emergency and, and changes in that area as they relate to higher education. Mm. Um, so, so, yeah, that's what I'm hoping The personal life uh, legacy might be with uh, my children and and friends who know me and and probably that overlaps into work as well that. I've never I've never wanted a legacy in work that necessarily relates to Craig Mahoney did uh, or Craig Mahoney achieved for me it's been far more about creating an influence for change that people have understood. For them to be able to take the mantle of whatever I set out to achieve in the first place, it still requires further work. Because as we said in the, in the early part of this, this conversation, life and, and, and the world is constantly in transition. So Nothing stays the same. Mm-hmm. And it's important that we set up things that are not dependent on ourselves. So, so my legacy has always been in organizations I've worked to make sure that whatever I've tried to do is not dependent on my presence. It's sustainable beyond me. And that's the legacy that I've always tried to create, that we set up the right journey, we create the right infrastructure for that to happen, that we get buy-in from the people around us by influence, and that people want to continue that legacy without me being still the leader of that organisation. And certainly at UWS, uh, where where it was nine years I was there, not seven, um, uh, the the legacy I think is sustainable, and I'm I'm seeing people doing that now, and yeah, very proud to me that in the months after i left that it it was named as scottish university of the year which i'm extremely proud of
0: that's fantastic craig uh right right so well done you and and all the people there in your team which is my next bit is about teams executive teams um you've been in situations certainly in the 11 years that i've known where sometimes you've inherited very good teams sometimes you've inherited teams which have one or two toxic individuals in that you have to act upon because Mm. like a a rotten apple in a bowl, the rest of the fruit starts to go off as well. And they sort of and then and soon you don't have that trust and loyalty and the team isn't working together. It's working against each other and against you. Um, What's your top tip to leaders when they've got a a team that has somebody toxic in it or the team just generally isn't high performing because high performance is something that interests you. What, What would be your advice?
1: Yeah your metaphor is very good about the rotten uh, rotten fruit in a bowl and its impact on the other fruit um i think that's that's a perfect metaphor for the description that happens when somebody is cynical or toxic and and unhelpful in a leadership team and you've worked with me on a couple of those examples uh i've i've always taken the attitude that i want to try and develop people and make them better um you've often advised me craig and i think that's going to happen and you're better off to cauterize this earlier rather than later um, and, and I think my learning experience, and, and I'm never good at applying this, would be that if there is a, if there is a toxic element to a team, cauterizing it quickly and, and removing it is absolutely essential. Uh-huh. Uh, and if you don't do that, it will fester and cause further problems uh, and disable you from being the leader that you can be with the, the aspirations that you want to bring into that team. I, I would caution here, of course, that individuals need to be aware of themselves, back to emotional intelligence and, and cultural awareness. I'm not implying you need to be a despot. So, no, yeah, no, please
0: understand no. that. Uh, and, and I know that from having worked with you, that, that the pains you go to try and find a way to develop people, uh, and I'm you know, clearly in my profession, I'm a great believer in developing. But at the same time, there are many moments where somebody's in the wrong job in the wrong culture, doesn't fit with their values, and they're not the right fit and yeah. to help them find their happiness somewhere else and be kind in the way that they are uh, exited as kind as you would be when you brought them in.
1: Yeah,
0: so they yeah. can leave with dignity and you don't destroy them. Uh, and you're not cruel to them. Um, but but also you provide some means for them to think about what is the next right move for them Well, yeah. just you're not required anymore. Um, so so that's really important. Let's go on to the last two questions, which is uh, fa- favorite uh, one or two books you have on leadership. And then if you could um, uh, do the top tip at the end, and I'll, I'll cover that when we get there. But what about favorite books, Craig, and, and why would you recommend them to people listening?
1: Yeah, the, 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 they're not necessarily some of them are leadership books, but some of them are just uh, books about uh, the, the way in which a business needs to run and, and even higher education, which is predominantly for not-for-profit in the UK is still a business and needs to be run accordingly. So uh, one of the most impactful books that I came across in my early part of, of leadership uh, was a book called Peak Performance and, and how it relates to, uh, to business. And it's a book that, um, that profiles successful teams in sport. And at the time when it was written, in the early 2000s, the, the teams that were successful in sport were the Australian cricket team, the Williams Formula One team, uh, American football teams and a variety of other teams that had sustained success, what was making them have success year after year after year and it was saying these principles apply to business but they're taken from sport and, and it was a book that had a big impact on me because I thought okay these are the sort of things I need to understand better if I want to be a successful leader in higher education and it also related to sport and then then more recently a book that, uh, the, and one of the copies of a book that you brought to my attention was a book by Stephen Covey which was uh, first things first. Um, and, and that was a great book for me to, to understand more about his dynamic understanding of leadership and the work that he'd done around looking at the characteristics that, that made leaders and things that you needed to take into account. And then, then finally, a, a book that only came out in the last year or so, which is Leadership Transitions in Universities, which is written here in the UK about UK universities, Um, and looking at the concept of universities in transition, but also leaders in transition as they go from a role, which is not the vice chancellor, which is the chief executive um, uh, from a role that isn't that up to being the vice chancellor and therefore the chief executive and, and the transition that you have to go through. As you've said to me on many occasions, the skills and the abilities that got you to the job and the role you're at now may not be the ones that you need for the next job that you take, particularly if it's a promotion and elevation above where you are now. Uh, and you know, that is such a strong message. And so three examples of, of leadership books for me that have impacted on my career um, and, and you know, created a, a positive change to me.
0: Yeah, great, Craig. And, and, and I do find all those very interesting. And as and the saying goes, I think it was uh, um, one of my coaching um, mentors to me, um, Marshall Goldsmith said, what got you here won't get you there. I yeah. think was, was the name of his particular book, which is, but the, the, the saying is the same, that the, the early uh, experiences you have aren't necessarily the right ones for the next one. I think of yeah. of some of the young McKinsey analysts. They're great as an analyst, but that won't make them a partner in McKinsey if they carry on being like that. They're going to have to shift and evolve. Um, okay, so if you just very briefly, Craig, because this is part of uh, this this uh, session and it stands in its own right, just introduce yourself um, and share your two minute top leadership tip over to you. Well, I'm Craig
1: Mahoney, Craig Mahoney, Australian born, but British citizen now worked in the UK for 30 odd years in higher education. And and my top tip uh, as a leader would be uh, don't take yourself too seriously. (laughs) Um, And and by that, what I mean is that none of us is irreplaceable and that there's a time and a place for us to be a leader. But be open, Um, be willing to listen to others. Don't assume you know all the answers because there's a wealth of knowledge out there. Everybody's opinion can matter and make a difference. Uh, And so therefore be sponge-like in your leadership behavior. Listen to a variety of people and be prepared to change. Uh, Certainly things which are are changeable in terms of what you aspire to be, Um, but at the same time maintain your own moral compass as we spoke of
0: earlier. Yeah, great. Craig, uh, fantastic as always. Thank you very much, uh, Craig Mahoney, for uh, being on the Inspiring Leadership Series. Lovely wisdom and experience. And uh, people are very lucky if they can learn from you and tip, pick up these tips. So thanks for for sharing.
1: Thanks for having me, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure.
0: All right. Thank you.